Good evening, Saints. Oh, thank you. Tonight is Wednesday the 25th. It is the, it is the day before Thanksgiving. I know we're all... Yeah. So I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about giving thanks. Tonight's message title is, What Are You Thankful For? No. No. This is LCM. We are going to be talking about warfare. We have a title slide for you. The title of our message is, Hold the Line. You know what, Teresa? I actually like that sermon title uh, better than what I had, so let's go with that. Um, yeah, just send your notes to me real quick. Now, I have so enjoyed listening to uh, the sermons and messages uh, lately, but not only listening, but applying them to my life. Um, you know, it's a common thread in all of our, uh, these recent messages, um, including the words that we received at the, uh, at the conference, uh, is that it's time to get off of our butts. It's time to get dangerous to the enemy. Come on, the struggle is real. Can you see it? Oh, I can. The other side of obedience and pour it all out. Gone are the days of sitting and soaking. Gone are the days of absorbing but not pouring out. Man, I'm part of the Aswan team now. I've got responsibilities. You know, Floor was in uh, actually the nursery uh, for that service. When, and I was like, babe, you're a part of the swan team now. And she was like, finally. <laughs> no, I, I'm excited. And I'm sure it's not just me. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one that feels this way. See, because something has been deeply embedded in my life uh, that I've really had to, to relearn. It's the idea of holding the line. Now, holding the line sounds like a good thing, right? Man, we got to hold the line. Hold, brothers! Right? But if if we think about this for just a second, let's think about the implications about what that actually means, uh, to hold the line. See, because our pastors are pushing us towards something, and it sure as heck ain't safety. Um, but I wanted to uh, dig into this a little bit more, and let's look at uh, the type of characteristics that define our God. Y'all ready to get in the Word? Turn to Isaiah 42, verse 13, and say, hold the line when you get there. Isaiah 42.13 says, The Lord will march out like a mighty man. Say like a mighty man. Like a a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry. Everyone, raise up a battle cry. And will triumph over his enemies. Man, that is a good description of our God, isn't it? It is. Exodus 15.3 says, the Lord is a warrior. 
That is the core function of his character. That is who he is. He is a warrior. Here Isaiah is presenting God as a savior who will march out. Man, it's good to have a savior, isn't it? Yeah. In your darkest time of need, you need a savior who will march out. But here, he will march out is future tense. It is not exactly like this in Hebrew, though. When you dig into the Hebrew, you find out it is in an imperfect tense. Perfect. Now, I know only about two of you, and Baj is one and a half, knows what an imperfect tense is. Which means it is a continuous action that hasn't or won't be completed. It's something that is not finished yet. For example, in English, I ate an apple is perfect. I was eating an apple is not perfect. It's imperfect. It means I still have more apple to eat. <laughs> when it says God will march out, it is something that has not been finished, something that won't be finished, and it is actually meaning that it is a continuous action that is ongoing. Now, other translations illustrate this notion. While some say he will march out, others say the Lord is marching out. Come on, the Lord is marching out. That means he is a God who is continuously marching to war. He never stops. He is in a constant state of marching to war all of the time, always. Even while we're sitting around eating turkey on Thanksgiving, God is marching to war. Which kind of begs a question. What does it mean that the Lord is or will march? Does he have feet that are actually going to hit the ground? Will Yahweh Tzabaot literally set foot on earth? Let's turn to Psalm 103, verse 19 through 22, and we're going to see how the Lord does this. All right, starting in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. So here we can see clearly that God's throne is in heaven, but his dominion does not stop there. That is only where it begins. His dominion stretches from the heavens down to the earth. He directs both the hosts in heaven and the hosts on the earth, and both of those are continually at war. You know, whenever I read the word hosts here, for some reason, I hearken back to the night of Jesus' birth. All the hosts of heaven were in audience and they were praising. No, host here is battle formations. God has his battle formations both in the heavens and on the earth. He's got boots on the ground and he's got boots in the heavens. Amen. Come on, say Yahweh Tzabaot. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of military structures on the earth and in the heavens. Turn with us to Numbers 2, 1 through 2, and we're going to learn about these structures. Numbers 2, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it. Each man under his standard 
with the banners of his family. Look, one nation that God chooses to do his will on earth. What's that nation? Israel. They were told to camp around the tent of meeting in specific formations. They had very specific formations that they were told to always camp in and to always march in. There were 12 tribes grouped into four divisions. Each division had a standard. We read about that. A standard of a man, a standard of an ox, a standard of an eagle, and a standard of a lion. You know what this mirrors? This mirrors the description of the creatures around God's throne in Revelation 4. Man, it's almost like the tribal encampments were arranged to mirror God's throne in the heavens. Exact formations that God commanded were representing exact formations around his throne in heaven. You know what this calls for? This called for the Israelites a heightened sense of awareness of each man to know his station. If it is a pattern of what is in the heavens, how important do you think it is to know where you're supposed to be as an Israelite? Now, what was in the center of Israel's tribal encampment? The Holy of Holies, the holy place, but more specifically, what was in the middle of that? The Ark of God's Covenant. Let's turn to Exodus 25, verse 20, and hear how God describes how his ark is to be constructed. You know, I like hearing about, Teresa talking about formations and uh, the specific situation that the Lord had placed the Israelites in. Because our God is a God of strategy and a God of order. And he's got a plan. And so we looked at the, we looked at the formation of the tribes of Israel. But I want to go a little bit deeper and look at the actual ark of the covenant that stood in its center. So we're starting in verse 20. And this is describing the ark. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony, which I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So God is saying that he is going to meet them on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and we see these cherubim. Guys, this is throne language. And with these, with these cherubim, the idea that God's trying to put into their minds is that I am a God of movement and power and advancing. You know, we've all seen the Indiana Jones, and we have a good idea about what the Ark looks like. But, but, whenever, the, but whenever the Israelites heard this, they knew that it signified power and advancing, intimidation, movement, royalty. Amen. This is where the king would meet with his subjects, and he would do it while he was sitting on the throne. Let's turn to Numbers 10, 35 through 36, and you're going to hear Moses speaking about the ark and what he said. In verse 35, whenever the ark set out, you see how it's moving? how it's going out, whenever it set out, Moses said, rise up, O Lord. He didn't say, rise up, O ark. He didn't say, rise up, O golden box with things in it. He said, rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. 
Whenever it came to rest, he said, return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Now think about that for a second. The ark would go before Israel in battle, and Israel would follow in formation. The ark would go first during the Jordan crossing. The ark would go first in the battle of Jericho. When the ark went out, Moses knew that God was enthroned on the ark going out to battle with them as commander. He knew that God was stationed right there on his throne. And when the ark was going out, God is literally marching. When the people marched behind God's throne, God marched with them because they were in exact formations that God had put them in. In other words, whenever they march and God's throne is right there amongst them, God is marching with them. You know what that looks like in our church? When we are praying through the tabernacle in specific formations as a body, God is marching with us as well. Amen. Amen. One of the things that I found to be particularly interesting was something that Wade and Eric have touched on in the past is that every single direction that God's throne moves is going to be moving forward. He's always advancing. Whenever the Lord's throne is moving east, it's moving forward. West, south, north, always forward. Not only does it move, but it also moves in a specific manner. Let's go to Psalms 18. Let's start in verse 10. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Let's hold here for just a minute. We don't usually think about darkness and our God. So why is he having this descriptor for his throne, darkness is his covering? It's because it's intimidating. This is a man, this is the God of the universe going to war, and he's doing it in a fashion that's going to bring destruction, chaos, and intimidation to his enemies. Let's continue in verse 12. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. Again, more destructive language. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the, the enemies. Great bolts of lightning routed them. Man, that is a war cry. That is dangerous. That is destructive. That is intimidating. That's our God's throne. Now, is this throne on heaven or on earth? Yes, Yes, both. See, God is enthroned between the cherubim, and when he goes to war, it's when he's seated on his throne. See, these, these descriptors sound less and less like a throne and more and more like a war chariot. And that's how the, the Israelites understood it. It's not a stationary seat. And on earth, the Ark of the Covenant is a pattern of what we're seeing reflected in the heavenly realm. That's why the Israelites always carried it first into battle, because they saw it as an intimidating, destructive, chaotic chariot. When the ark sets out, God is marching out, and his divisions are in formation right behind him. Now, with that kind of imagery behind the ark, 
When the ark is moving out, God is literally enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Man, it was the duty of every Israelite to constantly be in battle formation. How important is it when the ark is going out that the people are very conscious about where their positioning is? They had to be in the right standard according to the right family. Now God's throne was constantly on the move. That creates more pressure. When God's always marching out to war, the Israelites always have to be focused. Am I in right order? Am I in the right position? Am I right exactly where God told me to be? Now where this carries through throughout history, God led his people through the desert. They were fighting Amalekites on the way. They fought Og of Bashan on the way and countless other enemies they encountered. Now God told the Israelites that when they were going into the land, they were going to fight once they got there. He told them over and over, when you get to the land, you have to totally destroy these enemies that I'm giving into your hands. They were to constantly eradicate the enemy, and they were told, do not be afraid. God himself will fight for you. Now, how is God going to fight for them? I think you know the answer by now. The ark was in their midst. God would fight for them because he would be with them enthroned on his Merkava, his war chariot. Which brings us to an interesting passage, because you know the story. What happens when they get into the land? Well, let's turn to Judges 20, verse 26 through 28. So we're in Judges now. We're in the 20th chapter. And just as a backdrop, I want you to keep in mind that this is generations after Joshua. This is generations after Joshua effectively used the ark to conquer his enemies. Let's start in verse 26. Then the Israelites, all the people, went up to Bethel, and there sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there, with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. They asked, shall we go up to battle with Benjamin, our brother, or not? See, something that's significant about this passage is that it's one of the last times, if not the last time, that the Ark is ever moved. This is a situation where Israel has gotten comfortable in, in the land, and people are settling in, and they're no longer advancing, they're no longer uh, conquering, they're no longer wiping out the enemies that God has demanded that they wipe out. And, and we get into a situation where them getting settled created a problem in Israel, and that problem was Benjamin. So rather than advancing the kingdom, rather than advancing the military campaign, rather than advancing God's will on the earth, they've got to do some house cleaning. They've got to use the Ark of the Covenant to go after Benjamin who's done horrific things, by the way. But it's, it's the situation where they were more concerned about holding the line in their national borders. We're just going to stay safe instead of advancing the kingdom of God. And now they're consulting God's war chariot to fight against their brothers. You see, this is what is so dangerous about our understanding of holding the line. What does hold the line really mean? 
Well, the American church has taken it to mean just don't sin. How many times in all the other previous churches that you've been to, you're like, man, how you doing, brother? Oh, I'm just trying to hold the line. It is self-righteousness that changes the way that they interact with the God who is constantly at war. Holding the line has turned into just don't sin. Just do not mess up. Just do not simply do anything wrong. And that is a dangerous position. That is exactly what happened to Israel. They became more focused with their borders and where they are at instead of actually going to battle with a God who's constantly marching. Now let's ask a question. Has self-righteousness changed the way we interact with our brothers around us? Has self-righteousness changed our idea of holding the line to simply just being hiding in sin but displaying righteousness? Just simply concerned with your own state and making sure you don't mess up? Man, i got to tell you, that's a dangerous thing. Yeah. Romans 10, verse 3 through 4 says, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Look, in the days of Judges, which we just read from, it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They became their own idea of righteousness instead of what God says is righteousness. God's righteousness is following after the ark. God's righteousness is constantly staying in your battle positions with your brothers. And instead, they were just holding the line. There were more areas to conquer, and yet self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, self-sustaining goals became their reason. This is how they became ineffectual in their mission once they got into the land that God gave them. And this is how we become ineffectual in our mission as well. You know, Teresa, whenever you said, how has self-righteousness changed the way that, I, that one interacts with their brother, I can't help but think about my own personal walk. See, whenever I was a young adult, I was so focused on displaying righteousness, displaying that I was holding the line, that it was actually really sinful because I wasn't actually, I wasn't actually being righteous. I was only displaying righteous. And the idea of holding the line, displaying the righteousness, displaying righteousness, I'm holding fast. How dangerous is that to the enemy? Not very, very fast. Yeah, that's not dangerous at all. Just don't sin. Just don't leave the church. Just don't look at porn. Just don't hold an offense against your brother. The enemy is not afraid of that. That's not scary. That's not dangerous. That's trying to have the appearance of self-righteousness. God sees that as minstrel rags. So the enemy's laughing at you, and God sees it as filthy. See, a, a stationary defense is not a very good battle strategy. It's much better to be a force in motion. Yes. How ridiculous would it be to be in the ranks of Israel and be more concerned about self-righteousness than having your eyes focused on where God is advancing the ark? Of course, holiness is, is, is important. I don't want to downplay that. Self-righteousness and, and having purity and staying away from sin is absolutely important. Important, but at this point, if that's not right, 
how will you follow the Lord of hosts? Man, it's time to get dangerous to the enemy, church. It's time to break their ranks instead of holding the line. Look, our church and our one association is experiencing open doors of revelation and calling. Aren't we? We are starting to see it. We have the promised land of a swan in our sights. And we are assured victory is on the other side. But I want to tell you something. Knowing where the promised land is, is about as good for us as it was for Israel. Knowing exactly what the vision is, is just as good as it was for them. They knew where they were going, but eventually got into holding the line. So rather than hold the line of self-insurance, it's time to be utilized here and now. God is marching out right now as we speak. We must, say must, must, take the advice that Paul gave to Timothy. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Say that with me. Life, life and, doctrine. and doctrine. Your position and the word of God closely so that those around you can advance. Let's dig into how we relate to the word as a weapon and our lives in a correct position. All right, so this is going to be fun. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3. We'll start in verse 16. Hold the line. Hold the line. Advance the line. <laughs> All right, so whenever I was younger, I read the scripture one way, and now that I'm much, much older and a little wiser, I read it a different way. Starting in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching me, for rebuking me, for correcting me, and training me in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now that's a good way to read that. Because the word of God does help me do those things. But whenever Paul was writing this to Timothy, that's not really what he meant. Whenever Paul wrote this to Timothy, he was describing the way to build up the church. He was describing a way to advance the kingdom of God. So let me read it a second time. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching your brother, for rebuking your brother, for correcting and training your brother in righteousness, so that that man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. See, whenever it's all on you, 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 you're, you're missing out on half of the effectiveness of, this, of the scripture. See, somehow we think that if we just maintain a stoic posture, that that's somehow advancing the kingdom of God. Why do we continue to delude ourselves into thinking that abstaining from gossip, abstaining from anger, abstaining from stirring up dissension abstaining from clicking on lustful things, abstaining from carrying offense, abstaining from drunkenness, pride, envy, jealousy, is somehow helping you reach the lost in your workplace. It's not. If that is your only focus, my friend, you haven't even made it out of the barracks. You're still trying to get your armor fastened. See, the scripture is a weapon 
that is supposed to be used in advancing the battle, not holding the line. Because God's throne is always moving. Why do we think that we can stay the same? In fact, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. It's active. We must be active. See, this is how we use the weapons God has given us. And to be honest, have most of us at times become so self-centered that the only reason we read the word is about us and for us? It happens all the time. We think we're having a bad day and we think if we could just get in the word, we might feel a little bit better. Because, you know, we haven't done that in a couple weeks and this might actually make me feel better about myself. When instead the word is given to you as a weapon for your advancement, but much more than that. For you to help advance the brothers around you. That is how we use the weapons God has given us. Now, of course, using your weapons doesn't just happen at any given moment in time. Using your weapons has to be confined in the boundaries God given you. Let's talk about your position for a second. Each Israelite was born into a specific family with a specific function. They did not get to choose what family they were born into. Kohathites could not choose to become Reubenites. They were born into that as God decided. So in the same way, we are called to a specific function as a part of the hosts of Yahweh Tzabaot. God decided that for you before you were born. It says in Ephesians that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You guys are familiar with that, right? You were created to do something. You were created to use the weapons God gave you, which he prepared in advance for you. There are specific works that God prepared in advance for every person, every family in this room. But you know what that means? It means that that specific work that he prepared in advance has to be done within the specific station, the specific function, and the specific rank that God has given you to fall into. Those works are defined by that rank that God gives you. So you can't just do whatever you want if it is not totally determined by your specific function in the body. So we would say to you from the stage, the most important thing that you can seek God about is your function, your placement within the encampment of God. Because once you know your function, you can be secure in your role. Everybody say secure. Man, how good would it be to actually be secure about where we're at? Man, I need a little bit of that, don't you? Yep. In Acts class, we learn about the fist of God. That's good stuff, ain't it? Yeah. We learn about the five-fold ministries that make up the church. And understanding what you are called to, what your mezuzah is, strengthens your effectiveness in the kingdom. Why do you think it's so important that we teach on it so much? Because when you understand these things, you are secure and strengthened in what God is calling you to do. Now, we see many times young men and women come into the church thinking their calling's one thing. I was one of them. I thought my calling was something totally different. And then after a season, we realize through discipleship that we are called to something else. That is normal. We should be seeking after these things. We should be looking at it like, like Proverbs 2 says, like silver. Refined. So what does this look like in real terms in our life? Well, Romans 12, 4 through 6 says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, 
And these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. See, that is the, the kind of part that we miss sometimes. Each member belongs to all the others. Man, you want to know your function? Find out how you belong to the rest of the army of God. Find out how you belong to this house and the mission God has given this house. This function is not just for you and your family. It belongs to all the other families in here. Now in the body of Christ, there are many members. Ephesians 4.11 speaks about this. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, pillars, fathers, mothers, mighty men and mighty women of God. These functions were not placed in rank to help you hold the line, though. These pastors are not here just to help you hold the line. They are here to help you find out what your function is in the body. They are here to make you effective in advancing your station. So if you want to know where your station is, and somehow the relationship with you and your pastor looks like them trying to just get you to hold the line, you're missing something. They are there to help you. It is your job to hold the line. Look, this same concept, though, applies to an army following an ark. When you look at an army, you see many parts forming one body. Don't you, Paul Rosales? Paul Rosales was a machine gunner, and he was pretty good at it. He was an expert in the application of violence. In an army, we have frontline soldiers. We have cavalry. We have heavy weapons. We have intelligence officers. We have support personnel. We have men that equip others like armory guys. We have guys with vision. You would think of scouts. And our personal favorite that we just really want to talk to you about, but in a little bit, are shock troopers. Now, I know what you're thinking. This isn't the Star Wars bad guy that you're thinking of. Now look around, find everybody who's laughing and nodding. You've just found the nerdiest guy in the room. These are not guys running around with electric guns. Shock troopers were men in the army who were the most equipped to go in and create chaos. These guys were utilized to break the enemy lines. Not hold the lines, break the enemy lines. They were utilized to cause complete and utter chaos in the enemy encampment and to break the ranks. This would be the equivalent to the berserker role in ancient warfare. I don't know if you guys are fans of the History Channel, but have you ever seen the berserker series? Man, those are the guys that do the damage, aren't they? Yeah, so with all these roles that Teresa just listed that are part of the military, uh, the military unit, how important is it to know what your role is? That's important. Very See, soldiers who win are the ones that know where they stand, how to advance, instead of just holding the line and doing nothing. See, I often find myself, I'm going about my day, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm being used, I'm working within my mezuzah, um, I'm doing this or I'm doing that, and not really seeking the face of God about the, my actions during the day and the conversations that I have with people. And do you know what I do? I pray, God, just be with me. Just be with me. 
How selfish is that? God has called us to be a part of his military campaign to advance his kingdom. If I don't seek what that is, and I'm doing my own thing over here, and I'm like, hey, God, be with me. No. I need to be in with him, because if I'm with him, he is with me. That's how it works. But I want to drive this point home a a little bit. Let's go to Isaiah 41. We'll start in verse 10. All right, so starting in in verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Israel's under occupation whenever God is telling this to Isaiah. I'll leave it there for now. Let's go to Joshua 1 and start in verse 9. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now this is Joshua 1. So Joshua has not even started his military campaign yet. He's going up against the biggest, the baddest, the more numerous, the better equipped, bigger guns, more populous areas. He's on the precipice of doing the impossible, but I'll leave it there for now. Let's go to Haggai 1 and start in verse 12. Get y'all sword skills sharpened. You know, let's just go straight to 13. Just one down. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, So in all three of these examples, we can see the men and women of God that are in impossible circumstances. We see Joshua, we see the people in Haggai's day, and we see the Israelites during the time of Isaiah. And in all of those situations, they were asked to accomplish something that they absolutely could not accomplish. In all three of those situations, God said, I am with you. Don't expect God to be with you if you never put yourself in a situation where you need him to be with you. Because he's with you in the impossible circumstance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. 
Was what, what does Pastor Matt say? If your if your to do list is too short and you can accomplish everything, you didn't make a good to do list, because you don't have to lean or depend on the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Because whenever God is with you, there is no fear. You can have the same faith and encouragement that Joshua and Israel had. You see, it's whenever we're not in the right place that fear starts to to set in. It's like the support trooper thinking he's a shock trooper. So he jumps out, and then he wonders why he's failing. He He didn't stay where God wanted him to be. He left the formation deciding he had a different task. See, when you don't know where your line is, where your battle rank is, there is no faith. And when you focus on just holding the line, you're constantly outflanked by fear. See, when you understand that God is always on the move, when you understand that the ark of God, the throne of God is always being set out at war, when you understand that when you are praying towards the temple and the ark and the tabernacle daily, it aligns you with your brothers. When you are in that alignment, perfectly in that position, you don't have to cry out very often and just say, God, be with me. You can see that you are being led by the ark. You can see that you are in step with your brothers and the rest of God's body around you. When we find ourselves praying, God, just be with me, something really has to click in our minds. Is God with us? We have to constantly be asking, Lord, are you with me? It might mean that he's not. And then we have to go back to where the ark is and where the rest of the army is encamped. You know, we've been talking about holding the line. And you know, Keith, it seems like there's a little bit of semantic drift going on. When I hear hold the line, I think of advancing warfare. When I hear hold the line, I think of men who are in battle and being totally victorious and saying we must hold the line. I think of the 300 Spartans. I know you guys haven't seen that. (laughs) I think of them locking shields and holding line as they are advancing the Spartan kingdom. When I hear hold the line, I think of the Viking shield walls. When they are out attacking the enemy, and and yet they must hold together a shield wall to accomplish the mission. When I hear hold the line, I think of men like our pastors and elders. I think of men like Buddy Brasso and Brent Vinson who have gone before us and we are advancing behind them. You know, we actually found raw footage of Buddy when he first got to Peru. That's true. And we wanted to show it to you because he is utilizing a held line the right way. Can we put that video on the screen? Now, do you see those men in the video 
holding the line? When they are holding the line, they are standing shoulder to shoulder. They were not just holding the line in an incapacitated sense, trying to stay out of sight. No, holding the line to them meant get ready to advance. Holding the line to them meant standing shield by shield, shoulder to shoulder, ready for someone to create an opening in the enemy lines. Listen, if you take anything else from the Word of God tonight, we want you to remember this. Holding the line isn't just for you. Holding the line isn't just for you to stay pure and holy and to feel good about your own salvation. Holding the line is like what those men did. Holding up your shields, ready for a man to break open the way so you can pour in and break the enemy lines. I love this. I love the idea of a shock trooper. You know, one of the first cultures that did that were the Vikings. They had two shield walls, and then these berserkers would come from the back lines, and guys at the back of the shield wall would just launch them right over the line. They, they, they didn't barely wear armor. All they had to do was cause enough chaos to create an opening in that shield wall, and then the line wedges in and isolates both sides. And that's exactly what men like Buddy Brasso... Eric Stevens, Matt Pirro, Wade Sutherland, Brent Vincent are doing. They are being thrown into the enemy lines. And they need a line to be held that comes in right behind them. See, because what happens when the line doesn't support the breaker? See, he's left isolated. He's left trapped behind in enemy lines. You know, Matt said something a couple of Sundays ago that really stuck with me, and he only touched on it for a little bit, but it really, it left something with me. He said this, every man of God faces three things. You've got the call, you've got the commitment, and you've got the climb. And then he went on to a different subject, but that stuck with me because how easy are, are, are those first two? The call is exciting. Oh, man. I found an amazing church. I'm called here. I'm called to be used by God. That is exciting. I am motivated to do this. And so I'll make a commitment. Again, very easy. Yeah, I'm going to make this commitment. I was called. Now I'm going to commit. See, but that third one is where it gets difficult. And that's where most people fail that fail. It's in the climb. Because what we do is kind of, it's kind of funny. We can't handle the climb... And so we break our commitment, but then we say, oh, I, was, I didn't hear the call. I, I'm called somewhere else now. See, the commitment and the call are easy. It's the climb. It is, it is standing in the gap. It's standing on the line in formation with your brothers, with your sisters. We're supporting our breakers. We're supporting the men that God has put in our lives and we do it even when it's hard because the climb is going to get hard. And then you're going to want to break your commitment and you're probably going to want to blame it on, on the call because that's what most do. See, Matthew twenty two fourteen says, many are called, but only those few are actually chosen. How important is it to hold the line, church? Not just to hold the line. And making sure that you are being safe and not sinning. But to actually hold a firm line, shoulder to shoulder, 
That way, when the men of God that go before us reach into the regions of Aswan, they have a line right behind them. When they go in and disrupt and cause chaos in the enemy's camp, we are building here a line that will come in right behind them and go right into the gap. You see, both are needed. There are breakers rising up in this room. We are going to send a hundred families into the region of Aswan. They are going to be the berserkers, the shock troopers, the one breakers who go in. But you want to know what they're going to need behind them? They're going to need a line. They're going to need a strong, fortified, healthy families that are willing to stand shoulder to shoulder and come in behind them. Look, we want to turn to 1 Samuel 17. And this passage is about David and Goliath. Now, you've heard this story many times, but there's something we want you to focus on here. The Israelites formed lines. We want to show you how they held those lines. 1 Samuel 17 verse 1 says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Socha and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. You see, they drew up an actual battle line in the valley. They were all standing there in their armor. They formed a line shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, and they were ready to fight. If you slide down to verse 10, you see, Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Man, this happens all too often. We, we talk about holding a line. We talk about strong, healthy families. But the moment that we start to hear the taunt of an archon or a giant, dismay and fear creeps in. Verse 23 says, as he was talking with them, David, as David was talking with his brothers, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. You know what breakers do? You know what shock troopers do? They simply just have to hear the taunt and then they go run after the giant. They simply hear the call. They hear that there is an archon reigning and they said that has to stop. It's time to go and fight. In verse 24, when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. This is not the way to hold a line. They all ran in great fear when they heard the giant taunting. Man, this is a terrible situation. They're probably more focused on holding the line in their stoic posture. They're probably more focused in holding the line in what everybody thinks about them, whether they're a sissy or not. And what actually happened when they heard a taunt? They didn't hold the line. They broke the ranks and fled. As we move on down to verse 51, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. They did the same thing the Israelites did. Nobody there was capable of holding a line. But look at this in verse 52. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged. They surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines. Just like you saw in that video, when the hole was created, 
they surged forward and began to fight. They pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath, to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shah Araim road to Gath and Ekron. Now listen, the Israelites here failed to hold the line, and yet David did it for them. They failed to uphold their part, and so David did all the work. He went and slew down the giant, and then as soon as the giant is dead, they go, oh man, we could surge forward now. You know how often we fear and cower and then rise up after the giant is already dead? We know that we are supposed to be holding the line. We know that we are supposed to be interacting with our brothers and sisters, using scripture to build them up, knowing our placement and encouraging the brothers around them. And yet, we cower when we hear the taunt of the giant. And then after he's dead, we go, yeah, I was there. I was there. I was a part of that. When instead we were cowering and fearful. Look, we've got to hold the line, church. David can't do all the work. The Davids in our life, these pastors that are amongst us, these elders that are amongst us, Buddy Brasso and Brent Vincent, the men that are called to a swan, cannot do all the work. We have to hold the line. A swan will not be one like that. Just people waiting for a breaker to come forth. Look, there will be many breakers like David, but that means the line has to be much stronger. There are breakers rising up in this room, and that means the line has to be built very strong. So we want to ask, what areas are you failing to hold the line in your life? The weaknesses you see in your brother's ranks, are you too passive to do anything about it and fill it in? You see a brother on the right and the left, and he's struggling to hold his shield up. And yet you're just concerned about holding the line for yourself. What areas are we failing to hold the line? If we continue like that as a body, David's will die. If we continue to send out more men and yet not strengthen the line here, then breakers are going to die. There will be no one coming behind them to support. Holding the line means that we focus more on actual brotherhood instead of just fellowship. Instead of just showing up for one night and going, hey, I showed up. Did everybody see me? And then you go home and do what you want. Holding the line means that we actually build brotherhood, brotherhood in each other's lives. That we actually become so invested in JJ's life that I become so invested that I can't live without knowing how he's doing. I can't live without knowing how he's doing and I have to be there with him. Now, how do you form that? Well, it actually takes a little bit of relationship and time building. You have to spend time with the men and women in this room. Look, focusing on personal purity, focusing on fear of the unknown will cause you to drop the line instead of hold it. If you are always so fearful, well, I don't know where I'm supposed to be and I don't know how God's going to do this. That's how you drop the line. We have to let courage rise up in this house tonight. Self-centeredness, always focused about me, always in mission drift because you want something higher than God has given you, will cause you to drop the line. What causes you to hold the line is knowing where you are, firm and secure. Not being self-centered, but being self-sacrificial. I want to be there for my brothers. I need them and they need me. Therefore, I will hold the line. You know, we've been using a lot of war metaphors, and that's fun. 
we've been talking about holding the line. We've been talking about breakers and shock troopers. But when you really get down to it, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? What do I do? How do I hold the line? I've got a couple of examples that I want to share with you, with brothers in this church that have helped me to hold the line. And these aren't pastors. This is not me depending on the breakers, the shock troopers, the elders. These are just my friends. There was a situation where we were over at the kibbutz and Nick had a, a nice scripture string and a, just a little word about how to wash your wife in the word. He had probably spent an hour and a half putting it all together, compiling it, writing it all down, and then two hours explaining it. And you know what? That stuck with me. I can't unlearn that. It's in my brain now. Amen. That's something that he did in his spare time for me for free. That was, I didn't ask for it, but desperately needed it. There was, there was a uh, two weekends ago, my daughter Ivy asked me a question, and I really wanted to get a good answer because it was a deep theological question. So we're sitting down at the kitchen table, and we're going. I'm writing down my notes, and Rob comes in. He's like, oh, do you use Ephesians 4? Hey, don't forget Hebrews 10. Oh, also, there's here. Let me Second Corinthians. Let me find it for you. Nugget, nugget, nugget. And it was instrumental in explaining exactly what I wanted to say to my daughter and articulating it perfectly. Amen. How did Rob know to do that? Did he prepare for that? No, he spent time in the Word. He meditated on the Word. He asked the Holy Spirit to lead and guide him in, in everything that he does. And so when the opportunity presented itself, he was there to say, here, here's a hole in, in your line. Let me get my shield up there and block it for you. Nick Ergina said, hey, here, let me, let me stand a little closer here so that the fiery darts don't hit you directly and you can fend them off with this knowledge. Those things are going to stick with me forever. And that's not from the pastors. Amen. That's just from my brothers. See, we can't do that if we don't have diligence in our daily discipline. We can't do those type of things that Nick did and Rob did if we're not in the Word, and not just being in the Word, but meditating on the Word and asking the Lord to have it affect our lives. We can't do that if we're not in real communion with the Holy Spirit. We can't do that if we're not implementing tabernacle prayer and effectiveness in God's kingdom. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 10, and we'll start in 13. Uh, Natalie, can, can, can you give this to me in the ESV? Is that possible? It's the Eric Stevens the Eric version. Stevens version. Yes, I like this version. But we will not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned us. I'm just going to stop there. Area of influence. God has assigned you an area to influence. Yeah. See, influence is an action verb. That's not a passive verb. That means you've actually got to do something. Paul was telling the Corinthians, it's understood. You have an area 
in which you must influence. Just like the way Nick influenced my family forever. For free. See, this goes beyond just holding the line for your brothers here, though. You know, this is just kind of the learning ground of where we're learning what it means to hold the line. Because the truth is you're not only called to hold the line for your family, for your brothers, LCM, or even the one association. You see, because the advancing that Yahweh is calling us to doesn't stop with the Aswan region. We are building a line that stretches the lengths of nations. And it's all in preparation for one thing. Now, this is our last scripture. We're going to move towards a close. Keith mentioned that we are all in preparation for one thing. We are holding a line. We're learning how to hold a line, how to be more concerned about our brothers than ourselves. And we're doing that because in some sense, it's kind of like practice. There is a final berserker that is coming upon the earth. And he's found in Micah 2.13. We can put that in the NASB version. It says, the breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. See, there is a breaker who goes before the people of God. And when that breaker goes, the people are following behind him and going right into the enemy and the carnage that he creates. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. This passage is a prophetic passage and it's talking about in the last of days, there will be a breaker who goes before the people of Israel and they will follow behind. What we are doing here and now is just practice. Because what's happening is we are doing it over and over and over until the last day when God himself will be the berserker and we will be following behind. The Lord is constantly marching out to battle. Say constantly. His war chariot has been moving forward since day one. Ever since Israel left Egypt, his ark has been moving, his throne has been moving all the way to you. And he's still moving now. And he is moving on every day to try to advance to this right here, to the last breaker breaking out, which will be himself. Every day he's reaching closer to his goal when he will be the final breaker, the final berserker, the final shock trooper. You know what that means for us? It means it is, in, it is incumbent upon us to hold the line. If we do not hold the line here, if we break ranks and run away like Israel did with Goliath, then we might not make it to that point. If this line that God is building here, if any family in this line breaks and runs, well, what does that mean for the breaker that is going forward? Well, like David, he's going to get it done, but what does it mean for that family that was in line? See, every family here and now is forming a line and that is going to occur and keep happening. We are going to do that in other cities in the United States. We're going to form a line here and then we're going to send a breaker there. We are going to form a line here and then we're going to send breakers to a swan. We are going to form a worldwide line 
until the final breaker comes. Look, there are breakers. There are Davids in this room that are rising. Can you feel it? Can you see it? But they cannot advance without you. They cannot advance without you, LCM. Every family holding the line. The pastors, of course they're breakers. Of course, our pastors are like berserkers. They are going out causing chaos to the enemy. Definitely our elders are causing chaos to the enemy. Those that have been sent out are causing chaos to the enemy. Those that will be sent out are causing chaos to the enemy. They are breakers. You know who else are breakers right in our midst? Your children. Perhaps your own sons and daughters might be the next breakers that are sent out to cause chaos. How important is it for you families to hold the line in your own home? How important is it families to hold the line in LCM. Look, as we pray, we are going to invite you to come and pray. We want to pray and get rid of the stalemate holding the line mentality. The self-righteous mentality that gets us in the system from week to week of just being concerned with ourselves. Man, I messed up today. Today was a failure. Man, I did good today. Today was a a success. Hey, everybody, look how good I did today. When instead you're not focused on the line God is building here, you're just moved and motivated by your own performance. We want to invite you to come and crucify this self-righteousness, hold the line mentality. We want to invite you to come crucify the fear of missing out that causes you to go everywhere and try to do so many things that you might not actually be called to do. The kind of fear that causes you to just lose your mind. I have no idea what I'm called. Pastors, please help me with my mezuzah because I don't know. When instead, if you just have a little bit of courage, a little bit of determination, a little bit of faith, God will show you exactly where you're supposed to stand. We want to get rid of the me, mine, myself mentality that is all centered about us. The shallow vision that causes us to only see in front of us and not be able to see what God's doing on a bigger scale. If you are here in this house, it's because God's building a line here. If you are here in this house, it's because God has stationed you right next to other families. If you are here in this house, then it is not about you just coming and getting your fellowship time not about you just getting your time in with the pastor so they can fix your problems. It is about you being joined in a line that will send breakers out. So as we stand, we want to ask the Lord to come into this room and show us the areas that we need to hold the line better. Mighty God, we thank you for what you're doing in this house. Lord, we ask you to show us, Father, Lord, how we can hold the line. Lord, you are the great breaker, but we want to form a line beside you. We want to be behind you going into the enemy's camp. Lord, help us deal with self-centeredness. Lord, help us deal with it so that we can go behind the breakers that you are sending. 